I'm tremendously excited about the interview that is uh, about to unfold because it is about an important topic and a really, really wonderful book called The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World. This is a book that examines uh, some of the most important figures in the American suffragist movement. And beyond just looking at what these amazing women managed to accomplish over the course of, of a long protracted and difficult struggle to secure women the right to vote. This is also a book about how we as current day activists can take important lessons from the work of these extraordinary women who were part of the suffragist movement. And two extraordinary women are responsible for this book. Rebecca Roberts, who happens to be the daughter of well-known journalist and much missed Cokie Roberts, and Lucinda Robb, who is a granddaughter of uh, Lady Bird and Lyndon Baines Johnson. And they have been friends all their lives and, uh, in fact, enjoy friendship that, in a sense, with their two families stretch back a couple of generations. And they have collaborated on this marvelous book, which, again, is called The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World, published by Candlewick Press. Rebecca Roberts, Lucinda Robb, we welcome both of you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much for having us. We're glad to be here. Really, I'm honored to be speaking with you, and I really, really loved the book. And uh, I appreciate uh, the dedication of the book, which is to our mothers who taught us the power of women, the importance of history, and the value of friendship. Tell us a little more about the nature of your friendship, the two of you, and the way in which this friendship indeed goes back generations. Well, it is true that we were friends before we were born. Our <laughs> grandmother, my grandmother, Lindy Boggs, uh, came to Washington as a young Southern political wife and was very young and um, needed to know the ropes, how you navigated this strange world of protocol and politics. And uh, Lucinda's grandmother, Lady Bird Johnson, took Lindy under her wing and, and showed her how uh, to be a powerful political wife at the time. And uh, they were lifelong friends. They both lived into their 90s um, and they remained uh, tight throughout all of those years. And they had daughters around the same age. Uh, my mother, Cokie Roberts, and Lucinda's mother, Linda Robb, uh, were also friends from childhood. Um, and so Lucinda and I um, knew each other before we even knew each other and then had the great good luck to go to college together, um, coincidentally. So we uh, were able to build not just on this history, but on shared experiences ourselves and a shared love of women's history to be able to put this book together. And it's been a real joy. Mm. I have to add that uh, one of the fun things about doing this project is although we've known each other for a long time and our families have known each other, we've never worked on anything together. And it really has worked out better than we ever could have predicted. Um, uh, Becca and I like to joke that Becca says she never met a first draft she doesn't like. And uh, <laughs> we would probably still be editing this book if it was up to me. So we've really managed to, I think, balance each other out and, uh, and we are, experts sort of in different areas of the suffrage movement. I'm really more 19th century and Becca's more 20th century. So it's really worked out uh, very nicely and complementing each other that way. Great. Um, Lucinda, Rob, I want to ask you specifically about something mentioned in your biography 
that you were project director for something called Our Mothers Before Us, uh, which involved the uh, uncovering or rediscovering of all kinds of important documents. Uh, just say a quick word about this project. Well, I worked back at the National Archives in the 1990s, and um, we started going back through our records and finding all these enormous amounts of petitions from women. And I'll have to be honest with you, growing up, sort of the history that I got was a lot more about, you know, this war and that war and, and uh, this particular era and a lot of generals. And you didn't hear as much about women back then and the roles that they played. And so I was sort of amazed to find out that women had sent in all of these different activities starting early on um, with the abolitionist movement and uh, the suffrage movement and the temperance movement and so many different things that have been important in our country. Women really did play a very large role even before they had the ability to vote. Um, at one point we found uh, a petition uh, that literally was so big, it had been signed by 30,000 plus women um, against slavery, that when they delivered it to Congress, they didn't even unroll it. They just weighed it, sort of the weight of public <laughs> opinion. And I thought, you know, you could go, not that we could do it today, but you could go and stand outside, you know, a Target or a Walmart for hours and, you know, for days, for months. How long would it take you to get 30,000 signatures? That's, that's even hard to do on the internet. Um, so I was really impressed by the amount of activity and the influence they clearly had back then. Um, and one of the things that's been so interesting about this project is we celebrated the 75th anniversary of women's suffrage when I worked at the archives back in 1995. And in fact, uh, Becca's mother, Koki, uh, came and was MC for a special event we did and there was a parade and all this going on. And to really see the difference in how we, what we have learned and how we've recognized that event, the passage of the 19th Amendment over time, because it's been very different, the 75th anniversary to the 100th anniversary. Mm, very good. Good point. Uh, Rebecca Boggs-Roberts, I want to ask you about the work that you are currently doing as curator of programming at Planet Word Museum. It sounds like this is a museum like none other I've ever heard of. Tell us more about it and the work that you do there. Planet Word is a brand new museum of words and language. We are in a historic schoolhouse in Washington, DC. And uh, what do you do when you're a museum of words, right? It's not like you have a collection of artifacts behind glass. So it's uh, an interactive, immersive experience where you can really just kind of enjoy the cool stuff you can do with words. You can enjoy uh, songwriting in a karaoke room. There's a joke telling gallery. There's a magical library. There's an oratory gallery and it's uh, really a 21st century museum where you learn and you enjoy and your jaw drops in wonder and it's uh, beautiful and important. Uh, I am the curator of programming, which means it's my job to uh, kind of design all of the human interaction side of things. So uh, all of the public pro programs and educational offerings and visitor services and volunteers and private events. Uh, and you know, I used to work at the Smithsonian, but when the opportunity to start a new museum about something I'm passionate about in my hometown came up, I mean, who gets to do that? So mm. it's really uh, been an unbelievable opportunity. We were open for, for about a month, uh, and then we have temporarily closed again uh, with the COVID spike, but we'll be back. Ah, 
It's a place I hope I will get to visit someday. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Rebecca Roberts and Lucinda Robb about a brand new book that they have co-authored called The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World. Uh, you say very early in the book, it might even be the very first paragraph, I've forgotten now, this book is about one of the largest and longest movements in American history, the story of how women won the right to vote. It took decades to accomplish, and there were many setbacks, uh, but when it came, the change was huge and permanent. And uh, so this is what inspires your book, but because the topic of women's suffrage is such a sprawling topic, uh, I mean, one could write a multi-volume book that wouldn't even tell the whole story. You've chosen <laughs> to do something very, very different. You call it at one point a quick guide. At another point, you say you hope it will be useful or fun. I mean, you obviously had a, a really different uh, purpose in mind than to give an exhaustive, richly detailed story of women's suffrage. You, you wanted this book to be something else. What is that something else that you wanted this book to be? Well, I love the fact that you reference a long history because, of course, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Gage wrote the history of the women's suffrage movement that doesn't even get to the 19th Amendment, and it was six volumes, 5,000-plus pages. Uh, and that's a lot to digest. You're absolutely right. It went on for three generations, an enormous amount of time. So we wanted to get something that was conversational. We actually started this book. Um, I mentioned that uh, I worked at the archives for the 75th anniversary. And as we've been approaching the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which was this year in August, um, a few years ago, I started talking to some friends about it, saying, you know, I'm so excited. You know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I had one of my really good friends admit to me, she said, you know, I'm, I'm terribly embarrassed about this, but I can't even name one suffragist. Um, and she's very, very bright, and she's got a PhD in finance and knows all sorts of things. And I thought, well, heck, you know, there ought to be a way to really make this accessible and fun. Because we do think, sometimes we look at history and we almost treat it if it's something that, you know, you've got to learn all the dates and, and uh, you know, specific names and things like that. But it's kind of dry and dusty, and it's not particularly relevant today. And we think that what the suffragists did is incredibly important. And really it provides a roadmap to so many of the things that we are doing today. In the same way that they study military history, I think it's worthwhile to study the history of successful movements because in fact, the suffragists, it took a long time, but they did have an impact and they did succeed. And hopefully they can provide guidelines to a lot of the movements that are happening now that want to continue to further the advancement of our more perfect union and to get democracy become even more comprehensive. These are things that we can learn today from what they did. And um, we, we wanted, you know, like I said, to make it very conversational in tone and hopefully memorable, but also to point out why this is something that uh, it's worth studying now. Hmm. I really appreciate the, the, the wonderful balance that you achieved because I think actually it's, it's really tricky to know exactly how to, how to thread that needle. You could have written a book that would be very breezy and fun and approachable, but also in a sense lacking substance or, or sort of like scholarly weight. And, and you haven't done that. I mean, you've actually written a book that is 
very thoroughly researched and really carefully written and crafted and yet it's also really approachable and it's not intimidating in its scope i mean i really think you balance things out just right was it balanced just right right from the start or has that <laughs> in and of itself been kind of a tricky process that you had to sort of achieve as you went along with this project i think it definitely was the latter we knew what we wanted and we knew that we thought this movement was important so we didn't have to convince ourselves of the worthiness of writing about it but i think we did experiment a little bit with finding the right voice. In fact, at one point we talked about writing a graphic novel as an idea of how to present this history in an approachable format. But I think that what kept resonating with both of us is not just that it's important to know history and diverse history and to have role models that look like you and all of that, but the suffragists won. You know, they, they really accomplished this massive change to American democracy and they weren't perfect and we don't shy away from their flaws. Uh, but if you want to change the world like they did, and we hope everybody does, then you could really do a lot worse than uh, turning to the suffragists as examples. And so once we kind of got that theme, that the reason we think it's important to know this history is because the tools they invented or perfected are really powerful and important, then the voice kind of came um, and it became a guidebook uh, and uh, it became the sort of size and uh, target audience that it is now. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think actually you get at something really important, Greg. It's you, if we had written this book um, 25 years ago for the 75th anniversary, it would have been very different in part because there's been so much more good scholarship that has come out um, and there's a lot of recognition of people who had been ignored uh, traditionally in the movement, particularly black suffragists and the role that they played. And there's been a lot of amazing scholarship that's happened. And I think that's influenced us tremendously. Um, I, and it's everything from Nell Painter and Rosalind Turbog Penn, who were writing back in the uh, end of the 1990s, to Martha Jones, who talks about the role of black women in voting uh, in a book that just came out this year. And, uh, and I think that's influenced us and we've been uh, incorporating that in and sort of tying it together in the history, trying to put all those pieces together. And it's not always easy to do because a lot of times um, in this history, some of these groups didn't work well together and didn't, uh, certainly there was a lot of racism in the movement and that's been uncomfortable but necessary to deal with. Absolutely. And I think uh, I appreciate the fact that you don't shy away from some of those difficult realities that are also part of this uh, part of this story. Uh, for those of you just joining us, we're speaking with Rebecca Roberts and Lucinda Robb, co-authors of The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World. We should say that with all the historical information that is conveyed about the suffragist movement, it is presented within an interesting framework of sort of lessons or central tenets in terms of what is important in, in order for somebody to accomplish an important cause. I mean, beginning with tell your story and things like set a goal, never give up, and so on. I mean, fairly basic sorts of tenets, I suppose, but in a sense, I, I, I sense that they are carefully crafted. Um, 
How difficult was it to figure out what was most relevant about the suffragist movement, which of course did take place in a world drastically different from our own, but as you already correctly pointed out, still still bears close comparison. I mean, there are still sort of abiding principles uh, at much in place now as they were then, even though the tools and so on are completely different. How difficult was it to sort of figure out exactly the points of relevance? Or, or was that really clear and obvious to you right from the start? Well, as you say, uh, it's sort of a combination of very broad lessons like tell your story and then more specific lessons that the suffragists were really good at. Things like pay attention to how things look, make sure your imagery is um, part of your messaging. And it wasn't, I think, that hard for us to figure out what those lessons were because um, the movement was so long and so well documented. Um, I think we thought at the beginning we might need to um, strain to prove the relevance to contemporary activists. We, in fact, even talked about whether or not we'd need to include a sort of preliminary chapter about convincing people they could be activists themselves, the young audience, that between, um, you know, Malala and Greta and the Parkland um, kids, there's just so many examples of uh, people, even too young to vote, using their voices to fight for causes they think are important. So we didn't need to start with convincing people that they could be politically active. Um, I think we were very aware that we needed to draw direct parallels between this movement that feels historical and you see the pictures and they're in black and white and women are wearing hats and their dresses are down to their ankles and it all feels like a different time. Uh, but once you start seeing suffrage tactics used in contemporary activism, they are everywhere. They're everywhere. Every time someone marches down Pennsylvania Avenue for a political cause, which happens, you know, weekly here in Washington, the suffragists did that first. Every time someone stands in front of the White House with a picket sign, which again is a more or less permanent factor of life in Washington, the suffragists did that first. Turning a story around to your advantage, manipulating the press coverage, even when an event didn't go quite your way, and making the fact that it didn't go your way the story instead. The suffragists were great at that. They made messages go viral in 1917, but they did it by sewing them on a banner and standing in front of the White House. So once you start watching these contemporary movements echo tactics, sometimes consciously, mainly unconsciously, you kind of can't unsee it. The suffragists laid so much groundwork uh, that is still incredibly successful today. I think it does help that we come from a political and journalism background in our families because it means that we do sort of look at things and think, how does this work? How do you actually get where you want to and move the needle? And I love to tell the story of Frances Willard. Um, okay, Becca, be ready. Becca's heard this so many different times, but um, of Frances Willard as being somebody who had a huge impact and somebody that we've never really, most people have never heard of her today, but back in her time, um, she was president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union from 1879 to 1898. She was probably 
one of the best known women in the United States, if not in the entire world after Queen Victoria. She was hugely popular and well-respected. She led the largest women's organization in the country, and again, probably in the world at that time, for a long time. It had a big impact. She wrote lots of popular books. I like to sort of describe her as someone who's maybe a cross between, I don't know, maybe Oprah and Dolly Parton today or something like that. She had a huge cultural impact. She was so big. She was the first woman. We talk a lot about statues this summer. She was the first woman to have a statue in Capitol Hall and she in Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol. And she would not be joined by another woman for over 50 years. So she was a big deal. And what she really did for the suffrage movement is up to that point, before Willard came along, in the beginning of the suffrage women, movement, a lot of the suffragists are making the case that suffrage is a, the women having the right to vote is a moral right, um, which of course completely is the right thing and it is true. But what Willard really adds to uh, the conversation is she says, look, you know, this is what you can do with suffrage. This is what you can accomplish. She, she really doesn't spend very much time at all talking about it being a moral right for women having the right to vote. She really leans in hard to that notion of, you know, women are the caretakers and the homemakers and they're in charge of their family. And she says, you know, women need to have the vote because it's the home protection ballot. And she talks about citizen motherhood and the importance that women, if they have the vote, can accomplish all of this really important legislation that's necessary for their families and for their children and for the public health. And what she does is take her large group of, of uh, mostly evangelical, mostly white, uh, mostly conservative followers um, who probably wouldn't have put uh, women's suffrage at the top 20 list of things that they cared about if, if it was on there at all. And she convinces them that this is really a good idea and they should be behind because they can use it to pass temperance. They can use it for public health. They can use it for education law. They can use it for label reform, anti-drug, um, raising the age of consent, all sorts of issues that women really were uh, involved in and that there was public approval for women having a say in. And so she sort of flipped the script that way um, and, and was very effective. You know, we sometimes debate in movements whether you need to have well, is the radical approach better or is the moderate approach better? And the truth is, I think Beck and I would tell you that you really need to have both. You need both the radicals and the moderates. The radicals move the goalposts and your moderates come along later and they move the ball. Mm. <laughs> That's well put. And I, I love the line about Frances Willard, about whom I, I knew very little before I read your book. I scarcely knew the name. And you call her the most famous white suffragist you've never heard of. <laughs> and so, and of course, it's always intriguing to, to learn about people who once upon a time were incredibly famous. And of course, now, for whatever reason, have largely fallen into obscurity. And it's so interesting to think about the way in which she was able to reach an audience that Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, for instance, probably could not or not to the, to the, to the same extent. Um, Another thing that I think is uh, interesting in this chapter where you talk about uh, Francis Willard is when you, you talk about how it's important to create a path for success. And a path for success often means small incremental steps. Uh, 
versus what maybe somebody might in their heart of hearts want more than anything is a giant leap into this just uh, result that, that everybody wants. Uh, the, the path is often not one of gigantic leaps. And certainly the suffragist movement is an example of, of, of such a path, which included uh, millions of baby steps and many steps backward along the way. Absolutely. I think that we uh, are very aware of that when we try to draw connections between the suffrage movement and contemporary activism. You know, the suffrage movement took 72 years to get the 19th Amendment ratified. And I think there's a risk that contemporary activists look at that timeline and say, 72 years, are you kidding me? That's what I'm going to have to do to accomplish my goal. But the, uh, the ratification of the amendment wasn't the only thing that happened, right? If you take the historical view and you start from Seneca Falls in 1848, and there are reasons to you know, date the beginning of the movement to before then, but the women themselves like to encourage the origin myth of Seneca Falls. So let's start there. In 1848, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton suggested adding suffrage to the Declaration of Sentiments they were writing, it was considered ridiculous. It was considered ridiculous by the self-selected feminists in the room. And so to go from people worrying that suffrage was going to, you know, it was like adding the idea that cats could vote in 1848 um, to the ratification, that wasn't one thing. It didn't take 72 years to accomplish one thing. All along the way, uh, women gained rights. Uh, legal rights. Uh, married women got um, rights to their own property. Age of consent laws, as Lucinda mentioned, were raised. Uh, women started going to college and holding professions. Um, there were reforms in divorce laws. There were all kinds of steps along the way, but also minds were changed. And that's, I think, another big lesson for contemporary activists. You know, you don't go to uh, marriage equality straight from rampant homophobia. There are steps all along the way um, because minds start getting changed. And that can be hard to measure. It can be hard to see that you're making progress there. And it can be incredibly frustrating. And you can feel like, well, my big goal, my big ratification of this huge amendment is still so far off because the Constitution is really hard to amend as it should be. Um, but you can take a breath and look and see what has changed and what small steps you've taken along the way. And I think that it's also true that your end goal is probably not your end goal anyway, right? It actually also ends up being a step along the way. Hmm. One of the really interesting things about the scholarship surrounding the centennial of the ratification of the 19th Amendment is all the people talking about who was left out, you know, what the 19th Amendment failed to accomplish, how Black women's rights were still so diminished by Jim Crow laws, um, how it really took till 1964 to enshrine their voting rights uh, in any um, real way. Um, how Native American women were left out of the 19th Amendment. Um, how, uh, you know, states set up education barriers, poll taxes, grandfather clauses, all, all the things um, that um, politicians have been using for voter suppression continued um, after the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So it wasn't magically that women had, you know, equal rights under the law in August of 1920. It was just another step on the ladder. Mm. And what? when you think about it, I mean, when women first started off, it, it wasn't acceptable for women to speak in public. It was something that was widely denounced um, 
from the pulpit. And in fact, not only were women not supposed to speak in public, they weren't even supposed to applaud in public. They weren't supposed to make any noise at all. So even decades later, you find that women are doing something that they call the, the Chautauqua salute. They're, whenever they like a speaker, instead of clapping, they would wave their handkerchiefs. I mean, Lucy Stone, one of the first people to speak out about women's suffrage and who would go and encounter hostile crowds when she did so, um, she later on in her life gave a speech called the 40 Years Progress, then she called it the 50 Years Progress, and she still died before the 19th Amendment. But she, one of the first things she says is, now there's no longer any ducking stools. And I'm thinking, what, ducking stools? Are you kidding me? You know, that's basically publicly approved waterboarding <laughs> of women. But it does tell you how much things have changed. And I think it really is important never to give up. Um, for activists, because even when you do get frustrated, there are little things that are changing that you can't always see. Hmm. It's, I think what's so intriguing about this story is that, yes, it is a long story of small incremental steps and setbacks along the way. And yet in so many ways, what set it all in motion, what began that long string of small steps was this bold step from Elizabeth Cady Stanton that was so controversial back in 1848, this audacious idea of let's go for getting women the right to vote, uh, which, which touched off all, all kinds of, of consternation, even among some of her, her allies. But you write, she created a mission statement for the movement. You could argue against it, dialogue with her, but at least you were having a debate. In other words, that bold start was the beginning of it all. And even when you are maybe conscious of the fact that this is going to be a long time coming, not easy to achieve, a lot of baby steps, but it, in a sense, it begins with bold vision. Elizabeth Cady Stanton is such an interesting character to study today. She did have a lot of ideas and she was usually far more progressive than just about anybody else in the movement on some issues. She was constantly giving Susan B. Anthony heart attacks because, you know, she would be talking about things that maybe public opinion hadn't even caught up that much behind. And in the end, she winds up writing her own version and critique of the Bible, which you can imagine how it was not only a bestseller, but it caused some of the rift in the suffrage movement because it was, was pretty controversial in its day. But Susan B. Anthony, you know, I mean, excuse me, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, that leads, when you're talking about uh, the Declaration of Sentiments that she wrote, um, Becca talked earlier about how that almost didn't get through. And I think that leads to another something that we found to be very important both then and now is allies. Um, it would not have passed without the help of Frederick Douglass, who got up and spoke in favor of of the resolution, um, because having been enslaved himself, he knew what it was like not to have political power. And it was his words that carried the day. And so from the very beginning, that importance of having allies working with you and on your side, especially as Frederick Douglass himself recognized, it wasn't for his own self-interest. It was something that he was doing because he really thought it was right. That can be what you really need. And in the end, um, the suffrage movement 
did not get accomplished with the votes of women. For all the enormous amount of leadership and work they put in, no woman ever got to vote for the final suffrage amendment. Um, the first woman in Congress, Jeanette Rankin, did get to vote on it in 1918 when it first passed the House, but then it, it failed to pass the Senate, so it just stood all over again. But even in that case, um, the stories of some of the male allies who came um, and risked uh, their careers, in some cases their health. I mean, there were four men, when they first voted on it in 1918, there were four men who were brought in on stretchers who had been sick or injured to vote for this. Um, one of the congressmen actually has a broken shoulder, and he doesn't went from Tennessee, and he doesn't want to have it set. Because first of all, he's afraid he'll be knocked out and he won't be able to vote for suffrage. But then he stays on in great pain to try to make everybody else feel guilty that they need to vote for suffrage. Because you have to have two thirds. You have to, it can't just pass by majority at that time. And it only passes by one vote. Um, there's one congressman who comes from New York from the deathbed of his wife, who was an ardent suffragist. And according to a promise to her, he comes down to vote for suffrage and then he has to turn around and go back up to plan her funeral. I mean, mm. there's so many touching stories and important stories of male allies who are important to the movement. And I think that's another one of the things that we talk about today, how to be an ally. Um, and you have those great examples from the suffrage movement that I think are worth looking at. Mm. How did they happen? How did they, how did, how did women make those allies? We're speaking, We're speaking with, with Rebecca Roberts and Lucinda Robb about their new book, The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World. Um, we've already touched on the fact that your book does not shy away from some of the more uh, uncomfortable aspects of the suffragist movement and some of the failings, shall we say, uh, at certain points when, when some difficult choices were, were made. And it's, it's uh, not only uh, around the matter of, of, of racism specifically, but, but also other issues which at certain points split the movement. At one point you write, not all of your problems will come from the outside. Some will be self-inflicted wounds. And indeed, <laughs> your book really talks about some of those ways in which uh, we, we, we see the flaws and failings and mistakes of, of some of these suffragists. What was it like to uncover some of this? And I'm sure even before you began writing this book, you were aware of certainly some of these issues that have been talked about before. But nevertheless, I should think that the closer you looked at these women and their lives and what they did, uh, the more clearly you were seeing some of their flaws and failings. What did that feel like? Was that on a personal level difficult? It was really important to us to not shy away from the things suffragists did wrong. First of all, that's bad history, right? There's no point in perpetuating that Hall of Fame model uh, that we've uh, spent a lot of time this summer and elsewhere um, re-examining as a way to tell history. Uh, but also, we if you're going to learn from the suffrage movement, you should learn from the negative examples too. Um, and so if you are going to um, change the world, uh, then you also need to know what not to do. And uh, the suffrage movement was rife with examples of what not to do. Um, and so not only is it bad, dull history to paint these women as saints, um, it's also not particularly instructive. 
So while it can be very disappointing to read about, for instance, Alice Paul, who I am enormously impressed by, who uh, injected uh, tactics and energy and momentum into the movement uh, right at the beginning of the 20th century, right when they desperately, desperately needed it. And then in the 1913 suffrage parade here in Washington, uh, when the Delta Sigma Theta sorority from Howard wanted to march, she got very nervous about having an integrated parade and told the Deltas they needed to march at the back of the parade. And you read that now and you think, do better. You were committed to equality. This was the whole point of the movement. How could you um, stand up to sexism and not recognize your own racism? Um, but we don't want to gloss over that chapter. We don't want to pretend Alice Paul was perfect. Where's the value in that? And actually, um, I am now completely stealing a line from Lucinda because she really made me uh, think about this in a way that I find powerful, which is recognizing that these women were flawed is liberating, right? Because we are also flawed and it means that we can also change the world. Uh, and you don't need to be some once in a generation perfect genius in order to. I think one of the things that I've found very useful is again, looking at these uh, figures to see not just, you know, there's kind of two ways they've been approached in the past. Sometimes it was like, well, you have to understand how people fit in the context of their times. And, and yes, there's, that is something that is, that has some truth to it. And then I think there's an understanding that, you know, you also have to recognize and call out what they've done is wrong and, and condemn. And I think that's something that the people are doing now too. I guess what I would like to add to the way we treat it is not just looking at people in the past as people we either gloss over their mistakes or condemn for their failures, but say, okay, what were they doing? that maybe we're also doing today wrong or messing up. I mentioned Frances Willard earlier as somebody who I find to be very interesting. Most of the time, if anybody has ever heard of Frances Willard today, they've heard of her in the context of uh, the her relationship with Ida B. Wells, um, who was incredibly impactful in the arguments that she made in trying to get white suffragists uh, to recognize the racism in the movement and that the language that they were using, um, even if they didn't advocate for lynching, was actually very, very dangerous and causing a lot of this lynching to be explained away. And that was something that um, that it's interesting to me because in a lot of ways, Frances uh, Willard probably would have thought of herself as progressive. And in fact, Women's Christian Temperance Union was integrated. It was one of the very few groups of its time that was integrated membership. Um, and they did do some things thanks to another black suffragist and temperance worker, Frances Watkins Harper, um, to give uh, black women a role. But eventually, especially as they're trying to get to this 19th Amendment strategy, where they realize they, if you want to pass an amendment, that is super hard to do. Legislatively, that's the equivalent of wanting, you know, running five uh, Iron Man's in a row or something like that. It's really, really hard to do. And they know they're going to have to get some Southern states. So as part of this sort of trying to convince Southern states, um, a lot of white suffragists spend a lot of time going down to the South and meeting with white Southern ladies. And they wind up sort of, you know, 
Lang explicitly saying, well, it's not going to change the balance of power down here. And, and they talk about advocating for white women's suffrage because it can counteract the black vote, um, which there wasn't, you know, there were already a lot of ways that that was being suppressed. And uh, Ida B. Wells really calls out Francis, uh, Francis Willard for the uh, language that the temperance movement is using that is anti-black and anti-immigrant. She says, you know, this is causing people to be killed. And it's interesting that one of the few reasons that Frances Willard actually does eventually come out and uh, go out and condemn lynching and get the WCTU to condemn lynch and think thanks to the work that Ida B. Wells has done in publicizing it is because this debate is all happening in Europe. Um, that's really where it makes more of an impact. It hadn't been a controversial issue in the United States. And I think that's something that, you know, when we look at ourselves today, what are the mistakes that we may be waking, making without even being aware of it? And how does that reflect? And how can we, as Becca says, how can we do better? How can we figure it out and try not to do the same thing all over again? I was really intrigued by a point that is made when you talk about uh, in talking about Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, this is now in the early 20th century, and when there is kind of a fracture in the movement, uh, even in its last few years, uh, I think you write at one point, it, it hurts our girl power hearts to read about uh, this, this, these women fighting with one another. But the splitting actually uh, had the... the had in a way, it was a way of, of actually helping the movement, helping the cause. That it isn't always when we are in perfect alignment with one another that we're actually in a position to accomplish uh, everything we want to accomplish. That sometimes in these splits, in this infighting, uh, progress of maybe a different kind is made. Can you just say a quick word about that? I found that really a fascinating notion. I think that differing viewpoints within one movement is actually a sign of that movement maturing. You know, when you're small and just starting out and you're moving in lockstep because you're such a minority view, um, that is an early stage of social activism. By the time you start getting more adherence and appe uh, appealing to more people and broadening your tent, you're going to have disagreements. It's actually a sign of success. It is a sign that you are um, appealing to a broader population. And certainly in the 20th century part of the suffrage movement, um, you had the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which is the large, better funded historic group that had um, massive um, petition drives and grassroots organizations in every state and uh, personal relationships with powerful men and were really doing the long, slow organizing work. And then you had the National Women's Party, and the National Women's Party was uh, marching in the street and picketing the White House and getting arrested and going on hunger strikes, and they distrusted each other. The uh, radical wing thought that the moderate wing was moving too slowly and uh, not calling out men when they were being terrible, and the moderate wing thought that the radicals were undermining their credibility um, and doing these attention-grabbing stunts without doing the long, slow work required. And so, yes, they did tear each other down in the press. They poached each other's donors. They said nasty things about each other. But ultimately, they together provided the continuum of activism that led to that final push that got the amendment ratified. 
And it can be really useful if you are an attention-grabbing radical to know that there's the slow, steady people continuing to do the hard work. And it can be really useful if you are a slow, risk-averse moderate to know that there are radicals out there pushing the envelope. And you don't necessarily say nice things about each other in public, but the truth is you are giving each other cover to make a mature movement that appeals to more people and encompasses more tactics. And so, yes, we hate that they didn't work together. We hate that they weren't nicer to each other, but ultimately it was a sign of the movement maturing and succeeding. And remember, it's not like women are a monolithic group where they all think alike about anything. I mean, one of the things to me that was a big surprise from when I worked at the archives was how many women were opposed to suffrage. Um, Mm -hmm. Not as many that were for it. But I remember when we found the petition that uh, remains one of my favorites, just because of the language, from the National Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage. Um, And they have, you know... 30 plus Mrs. So-and-so's on their letterhead. Um, But they write this petition into Congress and they say, among other things, that it would mean, if you give women the vote, it would mean that no legislature in the United States could meet without being surrounded by suffrage pickets. It would be an official endorsement of nagging as national policy. Um, And I, you know, and a lot of other great lines from this one particular (laughs) petition, but, but they were actually a pretty large organized group and again they weren't as big and they weren't as successful as the suffragists but it just goes to show you that you're not going to have um one not everybody is going to be thinking the same way and and what's interesting is the anti-suffragists wind up using a lot of the tactics that the suffragists actually pioneered themselves so a lot of these same things that we talk about in their book they use as well hmm. Well, it's an amazing story, and of course, uh, the the ripples are 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 ever ever expanding to our to our very very present day. And it's always wonderful whenever we are given a book that makes vivid and relevant uh, figures from uh, the relatively distant past. And so, in your book, we come to really understand and appreciate the importance of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Sojourner Truth and Ida B. Wells and Alice Paul and many, many more. As you say early on, these women are worth listening to. And the book again is called The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World, published by Candlewick Press. The co-authors, Rebecca Roberts, daughter of Cokie Roberts, and Lucinda Robb, granddaughter of, Linda, uh, of Lady Bird Johnson. Uh, Rebecca Roberts, Lucinda Robb, I so appreciate the great work that you put into this marvelous book, and I'm so glad that I got to speak with you about it on the morning show. Thank you, and thank you for creating this great book. Thank you for having us. This was lovely.